Let's get started. It's been a long time. We've had a long break here from Revelation, and I'm not exactly sure where we left off, so uh, we'll do a little review here. Um, you guys will have to forgive me. I'm really under the weather, and my voice is not doing so well, so I may just not preach like I normally do in terms of time, so maybe you guys will appreciate that. So we'll just see what we can do this morning. Uh, we're in Revelation 10. Does, it, does anybody happen to have their outlines from before? Um, we had started Revelation 10 and 11, and I had grouped verse 1 of chapter 10 through verse 14 of chapter 11 together. They form a bit of a parenthesis or a backdrop with regard to the chronology of the actual narrative. It's kind of a behind-the-scenes look at events that are spanning the judgments, much like we see in chapter 7 with the sealing of the 144,000 witnesses. Okay? Revelation 10 through the first 14 verses of chapter 11, they don't necessarily advance the narrative, okay? but they present facts that contribute to the entire prophetic scene. Okay? And we started to look at this. We see a mighty angel with a little book. We're going to see the burden of preaching these judgments throughout the church age, a burden given to John and to all believers. We're going to see a glimpse of the tribulation temple, which doesn't even stand today. We're going to learn about God's two special witnesses. And so I, talk a little, I talked a little bit about a pattern. Revelation is organized. It's not just random thoughts. Not going to go over that again. Uh, but in terms of this parenthesis, chapter 10 and 11, the theme is a testimony. Okay, the theme is testimony. And that's what we're in the midst of discussing now. The key aspect of this section of the book is the witness or testimony of God's truth during terrible days of darkness and judgment. That is a merciful God. The Bible says in Amos that God does nothing except He reveals it to His servants, the prophets. God has always warned those of coming judgment. The people of Nepal have been warned of God's judgment. I know for a fact because I've had the great privilege of being a part of that for years. They're being warned right now that earthquake could have been much worse. They've been talking about this for years Kathmandu's totally unprepared for this. Um, Kathmandu in the valley is an example of what happens when men overcrowd an area and the environment can't sustain it. Um, it really is a miracle that it's not worse than it is. Okay, so that's warning. Okay, Bishnu said he's already heard people in the streets questioning where were the gods or they must be angry with us. So all of this is warning. In the midst of that, there's testimony. And so I know Bishnu's a testimony. He's already been given opportunity to testify. I know that he will be sleeping out in that tent tonight around all of those people. And I know there'll be an openness. So God is merciful like that, and that's the way it will be during the days of the, re of, the, these, this re of the revelation or the apocalypse. The church will be raptured out, but God will still have His testimony. The Jewish witnesses, the Gentile converts... Um, but everything we see here in chapters 10 and the first part of 11 are a testimony. 
And we talked before I left for Israel about the testimony of the mighty angel in the first seven verses of the chapter. So we've gotten to the sixth trumpet, which was that hellish army, okay, that demonic of fallen angels that have come to wreak havoc, 200,000 horsemen, a third part of men were killed, and then in the midst of the sixth trumpet, which is the, set, the second woe, okay, the first woe was the locust army, the demon army that tormented men, the second woe is the fallen angels who kill men. But we're not done with the second woe. The end of the second woe or the sixth seal doesn't come until verses 13 and 14 of chapter 11. So as far as the narrative, we're still in the sixth seal, but this is a parenthesis. Okay? And we, we see a testimony here of a mighty angel. And I've talked a lot about this, but let's just read the Scripture. You can't go wrong reading the words of God for review. The first seven verses... John says, I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven. Not just an angel, but a mighty angel, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right, hand, right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. Okay, We talked about the identity of this mighty angel. In terms of Israel's perspective, God... Or Messiah manifests Himself as a mighty angel, the angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament. This is Jesus the Christ, okay? He's got a little book in His hand. I believe that's the title deed of the earth. It's that seven-sealed scroll that would have been much larger when He received it back in Revelation 4 and 5. But now the seals have been opened. The seventh seal has been opened. We're in the sixth trumpet, so it would be small by this point in the book. And He's standing, okay? One foot on the sea, one foot on the earth. And cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. Whatever they said, John considered it important enough to write down. But he heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand, hand to heaven and swear by him that lives forever and ever who created heaven and the things that therein are and the earth and the things that therein are and the sea and the things which are therein that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, okay, that would be the seventh trumpet that's yet to come, which are is or are, which is the seven vile judgments. When the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he has declared to his servants, the prophets. May God bless the reading of His Word. The identity of the angel, chapter ten, verse one. Go back and listen to the last sermon. We talked about that. I believe it's the angel, of the Lord Messiah pictured as he is on behalf of Israel during the days of Jacob's trouble, a mighty angel. Jesus Christ in behalf of his church is a bridegroom in behalf of Israel, the angel of the Lord. I talked about the little book, the title deed of the earth, the seven thunders. 
And we talked about the different times in Jesus' ministry when a voice spoke from heaven at His baptism, at His transfiguration, uh, as He went into Jerusalem, uh, after He came in uh, to cries of Hosanna, Palm Sunday. And now every one of these voices from heaven had to do with His identity and His authority. So whatever the thunder said, whatever John was told to seal up, had something to do with Jesus Christ's authority as the kinsman redeemer of the earth, with that title deed, the authority he had with the title deed and the authority to claim what is his, and probably something about how he was going to do it, how he was going to rescue Israel, how he was going to put an end to uh, evil and wickedness in the kingdom of the beast. We don't know. God isn't obligated to reveal everything to us. You know, Daniel was writing down things concerning the end times. And he was told to seal it up until the time of the end. There are things sealed up. And part of faith in God is trusting Him at what He has seen fit to reveal to us. And those things we don't know, trusting Him to bring to pass in His time and in righteousness. Okay, We as Christians spend a whole lot of time worrying ourselves sick about family members and friends that maybe aren't saved or they die and they obviously weren't living for the Lord and we try to convince themselves they're saved or we try to convince ourselves that you know somebody is really a Christian and even though their life says otherwise and we're concerned about all these things instead of taking God at His Word. Instead of just trusting Him. You know, I don't sit around worrying about whether my children are going to get saved. I believe God is faithful, and I believe if my wife and I do what God says, that God will save them in His time. And He's done that with Bethany. He's done that with McKenna. He's done that with Autumn. We need to leave these things in God's hands. And if they don't transpire as we think they should, we ought to be able to trust God that He's righteous. And what happens and whatever judgments follow are a result of righteousness. And though it may make us sad in the moment, Love God enough to know that He'll take away that sadness. And there'll come a day when it won't even be a passing thought. Cry out to God on behalf of our loved ones. Cry out to Him on behalf of the lost. But trust Him to do what's right. Okay? He doesn't have to reveal everything to us. And let me, let me tell you, we don't know everything that's going on. Okay? Let me give you an example. If you, some of you all look at, you know, follow my Facebook page, and I've always used Facebook as a means to, be, to speak truth. In a day when declaring the truth really is a revolutionary act. Okay, I really love this bumper sticker on the back of Russ's truck. It was parked in my driveway for a few weeks when he went to Nepal. He's always had cool stickers back there. One of them says, kill your television. I like it. The old Team Jesus sticker is so faded you can barely see it. But there's one on the back where it says, in days of universal deception, telling the truth really is a revolutionary act. Now the funny thing is, I saw somebody driving around Hickory with that same sticker not too many days after he came and parked his truck. But, you know, I've always seen a Facebook page as an opportunity to do just that. So it's not exactly popular, and you know that I'm very blunt on there with truth. I've said some blunt things about God's view of homosexuality and about gay marriage and all this garbage that's on the forefront today that Christians are falling prey to. 
And you know, you think that's probably going to make some people upset. Well, it came back to my ears that there's somebody, I'm not going to give any specifics or anything, that spoke to somebody who knows me that they see these things I post on Facebook and they're always a challenge. And this is someone um, that you would think would get very angry about this. So you never know what God's doing. If we'll tell the truth and trust God, we may be affecting those that seem to be totally bent on rebellion against God. Um, we, we need to trust the Lord when He doesn't reveal everything to us. As John did here, John was eager to write, but he was told not to, and he obeyed. It was that simple. The same with, with Daniel. So we've had, we have the seven thunders speak. We don't know what they said. Um, but then this angel, the Messiah, standing on the land and on the sea, lifts his hand toward heaven and swears by the Creator. You know, we have men today, fools, that say there is no God. And then we've got Christian people who have all these atheist friends that, oh, we can't say or do anything. We might offend our atheist friends. Well, good. A fool needs to be offended. A fool needs to be offended. A sodomite needs to be offended. A prideful person needs to be offended. An adulterer needs to be offended. A self-absorbed person needs to be offended. A religious person needs to be offended. People need to be offended. There were people offended at what was spoken from heaven in the Gospels, and some of them just said, well, it was an angel, maybe it was just thunder. Refused to even believe it. There are people that will have a clear sign from heaven. The Jews said, show us a sign to Jesus and we will believe. And He said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Why? Because when the sign comes, they don't believe. There's been a pretty big sign that there is a God who has the power to arise and shake the earth. And the sad thing is, there's a whole lot of people who experienced that in Kathmandu yesterday and they won't change. In fact, I can tell you right now what's coming. I can see it a mile away. The Hindus who've been pushing to go back to a Hindu state. The Hindus, the radicals who have been pushing to silence the church and to bring back a king are going to say, See, we didn't have these earthquakes when we had a Hindu kingdom. We didn't have the power outages. And now the gods are mad at us. We have to go back. That's exactly what's coming. Because a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And when it comes, they don't believe. That's why Abraham said to the... Um, that's why Jesus said concerning... In the, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, it wasn't a parable, it was a story. It was history. Only God could see this. Jesus was God. He could see heaven and hell and who was there and who was not. The rich man said, please, Father Abraham, let me go back or send Lazarus back or somebody to go back and warn my father, my brethren, whatever, that they come not in this place. And the response was, they have Moses and the prophets. If they won't believe Moses and the prophets or the Scriptures, they won't believe even if somebody came back from the dead. And that's the sad truth. But this angel, this mighty angel, swears by him that lives forever and ever... Um, very similar to a scene that Daniel sees. I believe Daniel, toward the end of the book, sees the same Messiah in a similar place down by the river, swearing by Him that lives forever and ever. 
Number one, that there should be time no longer. He swears there shall be time no longer. Okay? The voice of the seven thunders is sealed up, but the voice and words of the angel is not sealed. It's revealed. Feet on the sea and the land shows that he has the authority to claim it. He lifts up his hand toward heaven. That's a pledge. Just like Abraham in Genesis 14, when he pledged, he would take nothing from the king of Sodom because he didn't want the king of Sodom said, uh, uh, saying, I have made Abraham rich. Time no longer. What does this mean? It's very simple. It means there will be no more delay. There won't be any more delay. It's time. Time, no more delay. The judgment is here. The consummation is come. In Daniel chapter 12, we see that there is a limited amount of time given for Israel's scattering and judgment. It's a limited amount of time that will come to an end. And when it has it come to an end, Messiah will rescue her. She will turn to Messiah. The nation will have a conversion experience much like Paul the Apostle on the road to Damascus. Bent on persecuting Christians, he had an encounter with Christ, a type of what will happen with Israel as a nation. Now, I read an article this week where somebody sent me a link where a scientist, some kind of self-proclaimed scientist has come out and said that you know, what probably happened on the road to Damascus is Paul saw a meteor falling from heaven. And he mistook it for an encounter with God. Well, I guess the meteor was able to speak and said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? So it's amazing. Of course, the atheists jump on that and they think they have all this proof. Just foolishness. But that type or that conversion in Paul was a type of what's coming for Israel. There's a limited amount of time for her scattering. According to this verse in Revelation 10, time no longer, that time is up. No more delay in taking formal possession of the earth and the sea and sitting on the throne of Israel. No more delay. Messiah comes. We wonder, where, is, where are you, Lord? <coughs> Isaiah says toward the end of the book, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens. Oh, that thou wouldest come down. Christians of many ages have wished for the coming of the Lord. They've sought it with tears. They've begged the Lord. But there is a day coming when there is no more delay. The sad thing is when that day comes, it means an end to another uh, great situation. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Second Peter 3, 9. Will someone read that this morning? Whoever gets there first. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, but not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to Our God is a merciful God. He warns of coming judgment. He's patient and long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The day is coming when there shall be time no longer. And it's the end of 2 Peter 3.9. The long-suffering is done. God's not willing that any should perish, but many will perish. 
because they've rejected God. Do not reject Him in days when He is long-suffering to us word because the day is coming when that long-suffering is finished. Time no longer. No more delay. Judgment comes. No more delay when the seventh trumpet sounds. When is it time no longer? When the angel, the seventh angel begins to sound. That seven trumpet, seventh trumpet is the seven vials, just like the seventh seal was the seventh trumpet. They all go together, seven trumpets. So the seven vials happen very quickly. Once that seventh angel sounds, we're very close to the end. We think of this stuff spread out over years and years. No, very quick. Very quick. What follows the sounding of the seventh trumpet will happen quickly. In the chronology or the advancing of the narrative, there, it, we're not talking about years. We're not even probably talking about months. We're talking about days. In a matter of months or days from the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God will be finished. There's no more delay, the mighty angel says. Let me turn back here to Revelation. There shall be time no longer, no more delay. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. This is the angel speaking. No more delay, the mystery will be finished. Everything declared will come to pass. I'm very interested in this phraseology here, the mystery of God, and I believe it's worth taking some time to consider because this word in the Greek, which is where we get the English word mystery, mysterion, I don't like to, I always have rules that you should and shouldn't do and I always break them, okay? So if you have rules, you always break them, okay? <coughs> um, try not to pronounce Greek words from the pulpit wise advice from an old seminary professor, but sometimes when they're so close to English words, it's fun to do so to show you how the languages are related. But this word mystery is not in the Old Testament. Okay? It only appears in the New Testament, and it appears 28 times. This being one of them. Okay? So, time no longer... No more delay means the mystery of God is finished. Well, what is a mystery in the New Testament? Well, we find out by cross-referencing the different passages where this takes place. As we summarize different things and we look and go back and forth, or as I've studied, it becomes apparent that a mystery, as defined by the New Testament, is a secret known to those on the inside but hidden to those who are without. Mark chapter 4, verse 11. Eric, if you'll read that. Psalm 25, 14. Jason, if you'll read that, please. A secret known to those on the inside, but hidden to those that are without. And I don't mind a little delay in looking them up. It gives my voice a break, so don't rush. I can edit out the dead time on the, on the tape. <coughs> Mark chapter 4, verse 11. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. Okay. 
Unto you, Jesus' disciples and those that followed Him, it is given to know the mystery of God, but to those that are without the multitudes, I speak to them in parables. How many times have I heard self-righteous Christians who despise the preaching of the Gospel, who talk love, 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 and humanitarian, 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 and all of this, will say, Jesus spoke in parables so the people could understand the truths of God. Is that what that Scripture says? He spoke in parables to those that are without because their heart was far from God. They weren't interested in the things of God. And through parables, they stumbled at the Word of God. But to those who feared Him, to those who knew He was the Christ, to those who trusted God and believed His Word, Jesus spoke plainly and gave them understanding concerning the mysteries of God. Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians. Got a sneeze coming. Maybe not. It would feel better, but I'm going to keep going. We'll see if we can work it up. Paul says a spiritual man can discern all things, but the natural man receiveth not the things of God, for they're spiritually discerned. You know, we have all of these non-Christians out here trying to tell us what the Bible should and what the Bible says and doesn't say. Well, they don't even have the ability to discern it. Because the mystery of the Scriptures can only be discerned by those who walk by the Spirit. Those that claim to walk by the Spirit and come up with all these new interpretations that the Christian church has never held concerning morality and all of these other things, they are stumbling at the Word. Peter talks about in 2 Peter, Paul's epistles. <coughs> and in essence calls them Scriptures. It says that they're hard to understand and those that are unstable and unlearned, they rest those Scriptures to their own destruction. There are a lot of people out here today claiming the name of Christ that <coughs> don't understand the mysteries of the Scriptures because the Holy Spirit is not illuminating them. They're not seeking that and they're stumbling at the Word. Just like people stumbled at Jesus' parables. The mystery, a secret known to those on the inside, but hidden to those who, who are without. That's why Jesus spoke in parables. Psalm 25, 14. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him, and He will show them His covenant. The secret of God is with those that fear Him. Do you want to understand the Scriptures? Do you want to understand the mysteries of God? Fear Him. Because the secret of the Lord is with those that fear God. And He'll reveal Himself. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it's the beginning of knowledge. Knowledge and wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge applied. You can have all the knowledge of the world and be puffed up, but if you don't apply it, what good is it? It's not wisdom. A very, very wise martial arts instructor once said these words. Some say knowledge is power, but I say knowledge applied is power. It's a little bit of an inside joke. But there's truth in that. There's truth in that. If we can't apply what we know from God's Word, what good is it? It's not wisdom. But whether we're applying it or knowing it without the fear of the Lord, it's, it's useless. It puffs up. It's the fear of God that leads to understanding the secrets of God. What else is a mystery? Information veiled in the Old Testament, but declared in the New. 
You know, the new covenant is not a different God and a replacement covenant of the old covenant. It's one God and three persons revealed from Genesis to Revelation. The plurality of God in the Old Testament is amazing in the Hebrew text. The two comings of Messiah is right there in the Torah. Why can't the Jewish people see it? The secret of the Lord is with them that fear the Lord. These things are spiritually discerned. It's veiled. It's there. It's not a separate God or a new truth. And God hasn't canceled His promises to Israel and now the church is a spiritual replacement and all of this. No. Mysteries revealed in the New Testament are veiled in the Old. <coughs> veiled does not mean absent. It's there for those who will find it. That's why it's so easy for us if we'll take a little time to study and rely on the Holy Spirit for His illumination to share the Gospel very plainly with, with Israelis or Jewish people from the Old Testament. That's why I could stand at the Western Wall when I was in um, Jerusalem uh, back in February, or actually, uh, was it March? I can't even remember. And people go there to pray and to read, and I just grabbed one of the pulpits, opened my Bible, and I believe I started with Isaiah, let's see, um, I think I started with Isaiah 50, 52, and I read all the way to the end of the book, actually I read part of it, and then I skipped to chapter 59 and read several chapters. That's why I could sit there and do that with full confidence that the gospel was being declared. Because right there in those scriptures is straight up gospel. Veiled there in the Old Testament. And we prayed that God would give people ears to hear. We must have ears to hear and those ears must come from the Lord. Information veiled in the Old Testament but declared in the New. Um, Daniel, would you look up Romans 16, 25-26? And Bob, if you'll read Ephesians 3, 3 through 6. A mystery, a secret known to those on the inside, but not understood by those on the outside. Mystery is information, biblically speaking, veiled in the Old Testament, but declared in the New. Romans 16 25-26 Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. Paul had... To Paul was manifested the mystery of God. Kept secret from the foundation of the world, but now declared. In the days of the New Testament, in the days of the canon of Scripture coming to completion, Paul was used mightily in that. He wrote, uh, I think it was 13 books in the New Testament. Now it's declared. It was there, kept secret, veiled, but now it's declared. It's not new information, it's unveiled information. Ephesians 3, 3-6. Three through six. How that by revelation He made known unto me the mystery as I wrote forth in a few words. Whereby, when you read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, 
as it is now revealed to his holy apostles, apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Okay? Unto Paul was revealed the mystery. The mystery of Christ, which was hidden from men in times past, but now is made known, not just to Paul, but through the holy apostles. Veiled, unveiled. That's the mystery. Okay? Go ahead, go ahead. That the Gentiles should be a fellow heir and the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Okay. We're going to get into that in a second because it tells us the content of the mystery and an element of that. And part of that, a big part of that mystery, which the, many of the Jewish people fail to understand even today, is that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs with the Jews through Christ. That when it's, it is said to Abraham, through thee all the nations shall be blessed, that through Messiah all the nations would be blessed and be able to come into that covenant. That's something that wasn't understand, but now is declared. Okay? And it was declared by means of its manifestation to Paul and the apostles. Paul was given the authority to write these things. So many quote-unquote Christian people today despise the writings of Paul. Okay? They love the Gospels and the red letters and seem to think that they're more authoritative than the epistles when the epistles were given to the church for the church's instruction. And they despise Paul. They try to say, well, Paul was writing in a time when women didn't have rights or when there wasn't the sexual freedoms we have today and you can't really trust it and he was biased and whatever and whatever. But it's, Paul's very clear in 1 Corinthians, let him that thinks he's spiritual acknowledge that what I write is a commandment from the Lord. You don't love Jesus and believe His Word and reject the writings of Paul. Paul had an encounter with Christ. His life proved it. Paul was given authority to write the Scriptures by Jesus Christ. Those Scriptures were inspired. They've been preserved by God. And that testimony is God's stamp of approval. The Scriptures are one. Don't elevate the Gospels above the Epistles. That's a mistake that will get you in trouble. A mystery, known on the inside, hidden on the outside, veiled in times past, made known today. A third aspect, a mystery in the New Testament is truth that cannot be comprehended by experience. It can't be understood through trial and error, by testing, by human reason, scientific experimentation, or human philosophy. It can only be understood by special revelation of God. That's a mystery. God has to reveal it to us. We can't seek it out and usurp its meaning from God. In fact, that's what the Scriptures are. The special revelation of God given to men to whom God appoints an understanding by His Holy Spirit. The things written in here we could not know on our own. The only knowledge we could ascertain on our own is general revelation. The obvious truth that there's a God. That there's a problem between the creation and the, and the Creator. And that that problem is personal as revealed by the conscience. That's as far as we can get through general revelation. That's exactly the point to where Buddha came when he was disillusioned with the endless cycle of birth and rebirth in Hinduism. 
That's exactly the point to where he came and he could go no further. And when asked how to get to the Creator, he had no answer. And the only thing he could come up with is if the, the only way we can know the Creator and get to Him is He'd have to send a boat to us to take us to Him. That's exactly what God did 500 years later when He sent Jesus Christ. But did you know Buddha did actually prophesy a coming Messiah? This is something that it's not talked about very much. And it was very interesting the wording that was used and, 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 and basically talked about how a Messiah would have to come to reveal these things. And it's very interesting how someone who saw biblical truth through general revelation knew that salvation would have to come from an outside source. And it did come chronologically. Buddha was 500 years before Jesus Christ. He never claimed to be God. Okay, never claimed to be God. He never denied or said there was no creator per se. But he acknowledged the need for a savior per se or a messiah and prophesied the coming of one if certain things transpired. Very interesting reading. Okay? Veiled general revelations revealed to all men. But it can only take us so far and it only condemns and makes us guilty. We need special revelation given to understand salvation, which is not by what every man thinks it should be by works, but by faith of Jesus Christ, grace and mercy of God. Truth that cannot be comprehended by experience, but must be revealed by God. Through the Word of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer? In the world, it's to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. There's coming a day when the Holy Spirit will be taken out of the world with the church and that conviction's gone. And then all hell will break loose. There's no restrainer. There's restraint today. Okay? But the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the believer also is to convict of sin that we might repent and keep our relationship strong with God. But He reveals or illuminates the Scriptures to us, giving us understanding. So through the Word of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament believer, that means you, becomes an initiate and a steward of God's mysteries. Just like Paul. Just like the apostles. Mysteries, the mystery of God, or the mysteries of God, are things we can understand because it is given to those that follow Christ to understand them. They are things that we can see unveiled in the New Testament, and we can see them in the Old by the, the Holy Spirit and the testimony of the Word of God. And they're things that we can have access to by God's special revelation. Not through trial and error and experience, etc., etc. And because of that, we are initiates and stewards of these mysteries. What does that mean? It's our responsibility, just like Paul's, to declare them to embrace them, to believe them as revealed and not necessarily as understood. To take God at His Word, even though we can't comprehend or understand. We can't comprehend the Trinity. We can't comprehend how God the Father turned His back on God the Son. We can't comprehend how this happened or this or that. But it's been revealed to us and as initiates and stewards, we embrace it and we declare it. Trusting God to be exactly who He says He is, and to do exactly what He says He will do. 
The mystery of God will one day be finished. But now, when that mystery is not finished, we are stewards and initiates of it. What are we doing with it? Let's look at a few verses this morning that talk about our stewardship. And what are, what are we to do with these mysteries? And then we're going to look at, briefly at the different mysteries revealed uh, in, in the New Testament. It all comes together. It's all part, all up under the umbrella of the mystery of God. All right, uh, Jim, would you look up 1 Corinthians 4.1? Okay. Tony, Ephesians 6.19. Paul, if you'll look up Colossians 4, 3 through 4. And uh, Jason, 1 Timothy 3, 9. 1 Corinthians 4, 1. Let a man show account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Let a man so account of us. That's Paul speaking. As ministers of Christ. And what is a minister of Christ? A steward of the mystery of God. Are we ministers of Christ? Absolutely. That makes us stewards, caretakers of the mysteries of God. When we speak and declare the mysteries of God, we do it with stewardship. We don't cast it before pearls, and we won't cast it before swine or in the path of dogs. And we're careful to make sure it's declared when hearts are open. Stewards, not using it lightly or esteeming it lightly. Studying it, living it. Ephesians 6.19 Okay. Paul is asking the Ephesians to pray for him at the end of chapter 6. Okay. This is an amazing request. Paul in his humility is... We think Paul is this great, bold preacher who has no fear, but he's asking the Ephesians to pray for him that he'll be bold. Okay, I'm not a very bold person. I don't like talking to people very much. And I need that boldness from the Lord. So put out of your mind this idea that I'm some great, bold person. I'm not. I need the same prayers that Paul requested. But Paul asked that utterance may be given unto him that he might boldly declare or make known the mystery of the gospel. So as initiates and stewards, we are to, be, to, care, to caretake these mysteries. We are to declare them boldly. To speak of them boldly. Particularly in a day and time when they are rejected and mocked. Colossians 4, 3 through 4. With all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. It is the responsibility of believers to make manifest the mystery of God. That's the gospel. Salvation by grace through faith, not of works. The mystery of Christ. The mystery of the kingdom of heaven. All of these things that come up under the umbrella of the mystery of God. It is the believer's responsibility to make them manifest. And when God gives an open door, what does it say? That, what does Paul say that we ought to do? To speak. And that's the problem with the church today. There is an open door that's been swung wide open. As a result of these earthquakes in Nepal, are the believers going to use the wide open door to speak the mysteries of God? 
Or are they simply going to use it to go in there, throw down some money, throw down some food and some water, feel good about themselves, take a few pictures, come back to America, pat themselves on the back, and criticize their brothers and sisters in Christ because they think they're so spiritual. When God gives an open door, it's to speak. Paul said, I believe, therefore I speak. Not I believe, therefore I feed. Not I believe, therefore I uh, affirm or tolerate. I believe, therefore I speak. Going in there with food and water and supplies are what give us the open door. It's what demonstrates the words we speak. But if we do those things without speaking the mysteries of God, as we have been made to understand through the Holy Spirit, then we have missed a door of opportunity. And sadly, that's what's going to happen in Nepal. I, I, I really believe it. It's very sad. To be a proper steward is to make manifest, to speak the mysteries of God as He's given to us understanding. That is to be modern missions right there in Colossians 4. That's what missions is to be. That God would give us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ. Even if it means prison. That it might be made manifest as it ought to. That's what it ought to be in missions. But that's not modern missions. It's not at all. I wonder how many of the people that will flock over there as part of these aid groups will demand that they have a nice hotel room to stay in while they're there in Kathmandu. How many will be out in the field with Bishnu and the others sleeping in tents? Will they have to have that hot shower? I want that hot meal. This food is not warm. It's cold. Shameful. In my opinion, the folks like that are better off staying at home. The Nepalis are better off fending for themselves than to have to deal with that. 1 Timothy 3.9 Holding the mystery of the faith Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. We're not only as stewards to manifest it, to take care of it, to speak it, but to hold it with a pure conscience. What that means is we're to hold it and be above reproach. To demonstrate through our lives and our actions and our relationships the truth of the things we speak. So, in other words, there is no faithfully exercising the role of a steward when it comes to the mysteries of God if we are living in sin and we are living a life that runs contrary to what God's Word tells us it should be. You know, you may have a pastor that's a great exegete, preaches a powerful sermon, and under, seems to understand so many things in the Scriptures that we find hard to understand, but behind closed doors, he's having an affair with his secretary. It's all useless because he doesn't hold the mystery with a pure conscience. Words that are spoken may be true, but he heaps to himself condemnation because of his hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not speaking the truth of God. Even if it offends, hypocrisy is claiming to follow God, but not speaking it and criticizing those that do. 
when they do it in a spirit of love. That's woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Not woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, because you have the, the, the gumption to say what God says about homosexuality and then to rebuke those claiming to follow Christ because they're living in that sin. That's not woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites is the one that claims to be a Christian that's living in homosexuality and condemning Christians that are living the gospel, holding it with a pure conscience, and speaking the truth. Everything's so backwards. Everything is so backwards. But we are to hold that mystery with a pure conscience. Believers, confess your sins one to another. Take them before the Lord. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And hold the mystery with a pure conscience. These verses we've talked about, spoke about the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of Christ, the mystery of faith. You know, things that are understood by those who are saved. Things that are all veiled in the Old Testament but made manifest in the New. Things that we couldn't possibly understand without God revealing it to us. All of us understand the gospel, Christ, faith. There are some other mysteries mentioned in the New Testament and I believe these all come up under the mystery of God summarizes all of it. There are different aspects of that mystery but it's all the mystery of God. One of those is the mystery of heaven revealed in Matthew 13. The mystery of the kingdom of heaven. What is that? That's the valley of the church age between the first coming of Messiah and the second coming, something that the prophets didn't understand. It's revealed to us in the Gospels and in the epistles. One of the mysteries, one element of the mystery of the kingdom of heaven is that it would grow and it would be corrupted so much to a point that only Messiah could fix it. That's an element of the mystery of the kingdom of heaven, the growth of God's spiritual kingdom on earth becoming corrupted so that Messiah has to come back and set up a physical kingdom and fix it. There's the mystery of Israel's blindness. Blind in part until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. That's Romans 11. There's the mystery of the rapture. Paul says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Something veiled there in the Old Testament but revealed to the church. Something today that many people refuse to believe or even acknowledge or don't understand because they don't accept the Word of God at face value. And they don't hear the illuminating voice of the Holy Spirit. They don't interpret Scripture with Scripture. There's the mystery of the church or the body of Christ as Jew and Gentile together. A special program of God's plans for the ages. We read this in Ephesians chapter 3, that verse that Bob left off initially. The church is not a Gentile thing and then you've got the Jewish thing over here. God made promises to Israel that He's going to fulfill. Messiah will have a kingdom. The church is a special program and the mystery of it is Jew and Gentile together. It's a coveted place to be. If I were Jewish, I'd want to be a part of the church. Yet we separate Jew and Gentile in the church. We separate black and white. We separate along racial lines. Sometimes that's necessary because of language barriers, but it shouldn't be so. 
The church is Jew and Gentile together. That's a mystery. Something religion can't offer. Religion divides along racial lines, cultural lines, linguistic lines. We ought to be different. Because God doesn't do that. He's not a respecter of persons. It doesn't matter what your skin color is, you're judged by the same standard. It doesn't matter how much money you have, you're judged by the same standard. It doesn't matter how much power or political influence you have, God judges by the same standard. He judges the old drunk in the streets of Calcutta with the same standard that He judges the President of the United States. There's no respect of persons, and the church ought to reflect that. That's the mystery of the body of Christ. You have the mystery of the church as the bride of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5. A bride. You have the mystery of the indwelling Christ. Colossians chapter 1. You can write these scriptures down. Colossians chapter 1, 26-27 and study them later. Then there's the mystery, it says, of godliness. 1 Timothy 3.16. I'll read that real quick. This is an interesting passage. Let's see. 1 Timothy 3.16 And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. The mystery of, of morality. The mystery of what it is to truly be godly. Is it works? Is it religion? Is it sacrificing at the temple? Is it praying the mantras? Is it giving food to the hungry? No, the Bible defines it right here. What is the mystery of godliness? God was manifest in the flesh justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached to the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. That is the mystery of godliness. Godliness is not of works. It's not of merit. It is of the person, work, and life of Jesus Christ as proclaimed and defended by the church. Or as faithfully proclaimed and defended by the church. Let's back up a verse because the verse previous to this that reveals to us the mystery of godliness defines what the church, the true church is. Paul says to Timothy, but if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. So 1 Timothy was written concerning behavior in the church, not trying to legislate morality outside of it. Behavior in the church. Not telling a woman that she can't go and share the gospel with her neighbors or on the streets. or Not telling a woman she can't share the gospel with a man. It has nothing to do with what is spoken in this epistle. This is behavior in the house of God. Order in the house of God is a testimony. In the house of God. And then he defines that. Which is what? The church of the living God. Which is what? The pillar and ground of the truth. There's your definition of a New Testament church. The pillar and ground of the truth. We have a lot of buildings, we have a lot of associations and social clubs today that define themselves as a church. They may even meet the definition of a church according to the United States government and the IRS tax code and 501c3 classifications. But my friends, God defines the church the local church as the pillar and ground of the truth. And it's the local church, the pillar and ground of the truth, that is an initiate and a steward of the mysteries of God. 
and it's to declare and proclaim the mystery of godliness, which is not works, not humanitarian efforts, not toleration, but God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory, the person work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Gospel. So, there's a lot of quote-unquote churches meeting today that are not the pillars and ground of the truth. They've rejected the truth in favor of a lie. It's God's definition that matters. It's God's definition of a Christian, God's definition of a church that matters, not man's. I mean, hey, man says that a man can get married to a man or a woman can get married to a woman. I mean, that's how crazy man is. But it's God's definition that matters. God defines marriage. Jesus defined it as from the beginning. Jesus said in the beginning, God made male and female. So Jesus Himself acknowledged that man and woman were made in the beginning. They weren't the product of thousands of years of theistic evolution. And that God ordained marriage between a man and a woman. I don't care what man says. Man says all kinds of crazy stuff. Okay? It doesn't prove itself true. The mystery of godliness. There's also the mystery of iniquity. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 7. Let's look at that for a moment. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 7. <coughs> for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth... That word let is like the way it's used in a tennis match. It means he that restrains will restrain until he be taken out of the way. So the mystery of iniquity, John calls it the spirit of Antichrist, is already here. It's already working. But there's a restrainer that keeps it in check. And there's a day coming when the restrainer is taken out and that iniquity can flow freely. And that's when the rapture comes and the Holy Spirit is taken with His church. But that mystery already works. What is the mystery? Of iniquity, it's the continuation and build up of lawlessness culminating in the man of lawlessness, which is Antichrist. Okay? If you want to look at the Old Testament, Messiah is revealed throughout. But coming in second place, only second to Messiah in terms of being revealed, or a subject being revealed in the Old Testament, is the person and work of Antichrist. The Assyrian. The culmination of the mystery of iniquity. It's already at work. His Spirit is already at work in the church. It's already at work in the religions of the world, drawing them together so that as one, they will bow to Him. The mystery of iniquity. We understand it. It's been revealed to us. We believe the Word of God. That's not a prideful statement. It's a statement that's rooted in what God has said and the promises He has made to those that fear Him. That's why we look at the world around us and can interpret it according to the Scriptures. And we see what's happening. <coughs> These things are foretold. Why do we despair? It's, it's proof that God's Word is true. The mystery of iniquity. We've got the mystery of Babylon, the great mystery Babylon the mother of harlots and prostitutes of all the earth. We're going to talk about that when we get to Revelation 17. It, the mystery of Babylon is the truth of the source of man-made religion. So all of these things come up under 
the umbrella of the mystery of God. The mystery of God in the days of the voice of the seventh angel or the seventh trumpet. There will, when time will be no longer, the mystery of God will be fully revealed. Not just to us, initiates and stewards, but to all men. It will be revealed. The mystery of God. Right there in Revelation 10.7, what is the mystery of God? How do we sum it all up? How do we sum all of these things we've talked about up? It's the age-old problem of why evil exists. And why a benevolent God would allow sin, evil, and suffering. It's the long time span of the present age of man. The long delay of our Lord in taking the kingdom and putting down evil to establish righteousness. Why God has allowed Satan to seemingly rule, reign, and wreak havoc on this planet. That's the mystery. Those are the questions we don't understand, but it will be revealed. This encapsulates why God permitted the fall in the first place. Why God permitted the results of the fall. Sin, misery, and death. Why God necessitated the death of His Son as a means of forgiveness and not some other way? <clears throat> Why not some other way to restore man? Why the long delay in the lifting of the curse put upon this planet? Why have the righteous suffered throughout time? And why do the wicked all around us seem to prosper? Those are questions that many of us have in terms of the mystery of God. But it's going to be revealed. In the day of the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God will be finished. And the answer will come with an exclamation point. Not with a question mark, not with a period, but an exclamation point. In fact, God holds the answers to all these questions with an exclamation point. Make no mistake, my friends, these questions are answered in Scripture. We can say we don't understand them. We can wrestle. We can philosophize with our friends and neighbors and wonder why. We can find ourselves doubting when we hear wicked men on the streets mock God asking these questions. Well, why would a benevolent God allow this? And all the same questions over and over. Nobody has an original thought anymore. But make no mistake, these questions are answered in Scripture. They are answered. They are there. Though seemingly hard at times to understand. That's why the Bible tells us to study the Scriptures to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. If you don't want to be ashamed on the street when you're pressed with hard questions and feel like you can't answer them, your inability to answer them to a lost man doesn't take away from the answer itself. Study to show yourself approved to God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Make no mistake, these questions are answered in Scripture. Sometimes hard to understand, but they're there. You've got to want to find them. Okay? I believe... All of these questions I've just asked, I believe there's the best answer to all of them can be found in Romans 9. And then the best response to all of them 
can be found in Job chapter 40. And that's, that's where we're going to end this morning. <clears throat> Let's look at Romans chapter 9. All these questions. Why, God? Why the age-old problem of evil? Why the long time span? Why the delay in Messiah coming to take His kingdom? Why all of evil seeming to prosper while godly men suffer? Why, why, why did you have to kill your son? Why the fall? Why did you allow? Why, 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 God? I can't understand it. Therefore, I don't believe in you anymore. Here's the best answer to all of these questions. Romans 9. <coughs> Starting with verse 20. Consider these words. God answers all of these questions right here. Nay, but old man, who are you that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Has not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which He had afore prepared unto glory. There's your answer. Who are you to ask God or question God? What if God endures all these things? and puts up with it for a time, so that when the destruction does come, He's able to abundantly manifest His mercy on the vessels appointed to glory. Is that not enough for us right there? Is that answer not enough? That's the answer I give the mockers on the street. Who are you? You're just a created being. Who are you to answer or question God for why He made you? He's God. He does what He wants to do. And that's the simplest answer we can give. We don't need to explain Him or defend Him. Martin Luther said the Word of God is like a caged lion. Let it out and it will defend itself. It doesn't need your help. Jesus didn't need Peter's help in the garden. There was 10,000 angels waiting for Jesus to speak a word. And He chose not to do it because He endured long the vessels of destruction that He might manifest His grace and power and mercy to the vessels of mercy. There's your answer. Well, with the answer... A response is necessitated. That's a blunt answer right there in Romans chapter 9. Taking God at His word and trusting that all these things will be revealed. But what should our response be to that? Let's turn to the book of Job. Job had all of these questions. He didn't understand why he was suffering. God didn't choose to answer these questions in the way Job wanted them, what God chose to do was reveal His power and glory. And over several chapters, He asked Job a lot of questions. Were you here when I created the world? Can you tell me why the wild asses go into the mountains? Can you tell me where the snow comes from? Can you tell me concerning the foundations of the earth? And Job had no answer. The exact same thing that Paul summarizes there in two verses in Romans chapter 9, that same answer is expounded upon in the last chapters of Job as Jehovah God speaks to him. But look, look what Job does here. Chapter 40, let's start at verse 1. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. <clears throat> Basically saying the, asking the same question that Paul says in Romans 9 there. Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why have you made me thus? 
Then Job answered the Lord and said, this was his response, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will, put my, I will lay my hand upon my mouth. The best answer? Who are we to reply to God? The best response? Put our hand over our mouth and trust Him. And trust Him. A little bit later, um, in uh, chapter 42, Job says, verse 5, I've heard thee. Now I see thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's the best response. I repent in dust and ashes. I place my hand over my mouth. And that's what the place, the cross, ought to bring us to. And if you've been saved, you know it did bring you to that place. You don't have an encounter with Christ and leave unchanged. That's like me claiming I had an encounter with an oncoming train on the railroad tracks this morning and I'm here to tell you about it. I would not be physically unchanged. Okay? If you've met Christ and had a spiritual encounter, your response is just like Job's when he had an encounter with God and you're changed. We ought to be able to put our hand over our mouth and trust God even when it comes to the evils of the world, even when it comes to the mysteries we don't understand, because God is one who keeps His Word. And He said these things will be made right in His time. And He's even given us the signs to look for. And we see them all around us. Even when it comes to Satan, the great Leviathan, the dragon of the sea, God has made it very clear in Isaiah that He's got it covered. It'll be, ta- it'll be taken care of. Let me, let me look at this passage real quick. Isaiah 27, um, in, in that day, this is the day when the Lord comes out of His place to judge the earth. Even in that day, the Lord with His sore and great strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent. serpent. So Satan may seem to rule and reign and be in control of all this stuff, but when the mystery of God is finished, even the great Leviathan will be punished. And that's in the day when the Lord arises to punish the inhabitants of the earth that have rejected Him. And He does it because He's a righteous God. The unrighteous might accuse Him of unrighteousness, but they don't even know what righteousness is. And these days are days when God arises. It says in Isaiah 2, it says says it this way, God arises to shake terribly the earth. God shook the earth yesterday. Could have been a lot worse. But He shook the earth to warn men. Not Mother Nature, but Father God. I saw one of the stupidest comments I've ever seen on a comment thread on an article regarding uh, the Nepali earthquake. And some American person was like, Oh man, Mother Nature. We need to respect her. It's not Mother Nature. It's Father God. And... You know, in the book of Revelation, I believe there's three times when it says there's a great earthquake. Okay? The sixth seal is what Isaiah's talking about when God arises to shake the earth and men go into the holes and clefts of the rocks to hide. Okay? In Nepal right now, they're out in the fields trying to hide, but there's a day coming when they'll run into the rocks and they'll want the rocks to fall upon them. The, the people at base camp at Mount Everest will want the rocks and the ice to fall upon them. 
But that's when God arises to shake terribly the earth, the sixth seal. Okay? When we come to the end uh, of this parenthesis in chapter 11, the end of the sixth trumpet or the second woe, it says there's a great earthquake and part of Jerusalem falls. And I think 7,000 men, it says, I may be mistaken about the number, are slain in that earthquake. And then at the end, let me just close with this. I know I keep saying I'm going to close, but as we think about what's going on in our world around us, we have the seven vile judgments. This is the seventh trumpet. This is the finishing of the mystery of God. The mystery of God will be finished. And how will it be finished? Revelation chapter 16. I'll read verse 17. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven. All the temple and all of that stuff given in the Old Testament was just a pattern of heavenly things, by the way. A voice from out of the temple, from the throne, saying, It is done. It's done. Long sufferings run out, the mystery is finished. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth. So mighty an earthquake and so great that the great city, that's Jerusalem, was divided into three parts. And listen to this. And the, the cities of the nations fell. Kathmandu didn't even fall yesterday. I was reading how there was someone flying in and they couldn't even see where it had happened. But there's coming a great earthquake when all the cities of the earth will fall. That's a scary thought. Praise God that the, the saints will be with Christ in heaven preparing to return with Him. But that's a scary thought. You know, when we think of earthquakes, instead of thinking about Mother Nature, we should think about the mystery of God. The mystery of God that's been revealed to us. The mystery of God that we've been commissioned to take out and declare to the lost. The mystery of God that will one day be finished. And when it's finished, all will be made right. And that testimony continues to be giving, given even in days of judgment. And that's why it's right there. The voice of the mighty angel, his testimony, what he promises, prophesies right there in chapter 10. Next week, we're going to move into the testimony of John. Okay, I think I'll preach next week and then we'll resume uh, when I come back. But there's not only a testimony of the mighty angel here, there's a testimony of John. And what John does here when he is told to do something, is pretty amazing. It is a convicting testimony to us. So I look forward to talking about that. Then we have the testimony of the two special witnesses. And then we have the testimony of the great earthquake. When those witnesses get on their feet and are raptured out. So we'll continue to, peru to pursue these things in God's timing. The mystery of when we'll finish. This study of Revelation will one day be finished. There are those, none of us have inside information on that, not even me. But the answer is there in the Scriptures. It will one day be revealed. And it's going to require God's special revelation to reveal it. But one day, the mystery of the completion of this study will be finished.